Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, our weekly podcast on science and technology. Coming up on this week's show, how the tech giants have gone to med school. So as long as your hospital or your clinic participates, you are able to bring all of your health data into your iPhone and then share it with whoever you want, whenever you want. Also, finding ways to prevent passengers and autonomous cars from feeling queasy. Is there a way to deal with motion sickness? It's a part of the solution in the sense you have to put something on your head. But there's another idea that maybe you could incorporate these lights into part of the car itself, in seats or walls or something like that. And the genetics of divorce. How a new study of adopted children shows that their genes might play a role. If you are the child of a parent who got divorced, even if you don't live with that parent, you are 1.2 times more likely to get divorced at some stage in your life. But first, the world's biggest technology firms are poised to transform healthcare, meaning empowering patients, better diagnosis of disease, and lower costs. The past decade has seen the smartphone become a portal for managing daily existence. It's how we shop, it's how we find our spouses, it's how we interact with our bosses. Now, that array of activities is due to expand to an even more vital sphere medicine. I'm joined by the Economist technology correspondent, Hal Hodson. Hello, Hal. Hi, Aiken. So, Hal, why are technology companies getting involved in healthcare? Well, first of all, I think they think that they can do a lot of good in healthcare. They have very intimate relationships with millions and millions of consumers, and they think that they can make a difference. The financial reason is that the market for healthcare is gigantic. It's something like, on average, 10% of every country's GDP is spent on looking after the health of its citizens. And that's something like a $7 trillion market around the world. And so as sort of naturally international companies, the tech giants, Apple, Google, um, Microsoft, Amazon, and Facebook are really well positioned to try and take a slice of that. Okay, so why should they be so well positioned? What are the assets that they bring to the table? The primary thing, and you know, specifically for Apple, is phones in pockets. Apple is the only tech company that owns the entire stack and what, what, of, it, of its device. And what I mean by that is that when you have an iPhone, it runs Apple software. It's made by Apple. It's not the same as an Android phone, which might be made by any old supplier running open source software that may be tweaked in different ways. So Apple has complete control over this device that's in the pockets of hundreds of millions of people around the planet. And, you know, it's often called the most valuable real estate on the planet, that, that screen. And it turns out it's a perfect portal for managing your life. We already bank, we make friends, we um, buy stuff through our phones, and healthcare is kind of this next big step that these companies are trying to make. So what is it that they're actually doing? 
So last week, Apple launched a or announced that their next software update for the iPhone would include a feature called health records. What this allows is for anyone to manage their patient records through their phone. So as long as your hospital or your clinic participates, you are able to bring all of your health data into your iPhone, which is built to be secure and private, and then share it with whoever you want, whenever you want. And the reason that this is useful is that currently, if you want to do that, you have to carry on a stack of paper. The fact that it's going to be in your pocket on a secure device is a, it's a bit of a leap for where we've been so far. The other things that other people are doing, Alphabet has a range of healthcare activities. They've, done, they've probably done the most of anyone in lots of different areas. They have a weird company called Calico, which is looking to extend human lifespans. It's not exactly a healthcare company, but they're doing research to try and figure out you know, why we age. But more relevant to this discussion is a company called Verily, based in California, a company called DeepMind Health, based in the UK, and a company called CityBlock Health, which has just been launched in the last three months. But insurance company shares plummeted. They did. It was pretty brutal. I think, you know, 10 of the largest healthcare companies in America, all of their shares went down by sort of 5 to 9% yesterday. What is the market afraid of? The market is afraid that those companies really are bad. The companies that lost share, had their share prices drop yesterday, they're afraid that what they do is not very advanced and could be done better. And they, they suspect that this new collaboration could do it a lot better. Are they right? I think they probably are. I, I think, you know, I've experienced healthcare in America and it is, it's cumbersome. It gets easier the richer you are. But in general, it's cumbersome, messy, expensive. And, you know, it's one of those things where all it would take is for someone to just do it, you know? Hal, I can't but ask you this question. You have looked very long and deeply at the question of privacy and have come to a view that we should be very concerned about how we protect data in this environment and what large technology companies are doing. I, too, have looked long and hard at the issue of using data in society and how technology firms can play a role. And I come to the absolute opposite conclusion, which is actually we need to loosen our great respect for privacy laws in this domain to actually apply the data in socially beneficial ways that we couldn't do otherwise. How is this going to get settled? I think it is going to get settled kind of by doing both of what we want at the same time. I think that by making, like what Apple's doing with health records, makes it easier for individuals to control and manage and be involved in their health. To me, that's a good thing because it allows large numbers of people, should they wish, to feed their medical data into various clever algorithms that can help them. The problem for me comes when the only option is to just blanket say, we're going to take everybody's data and process it for the greater good. Now, Sometimes that greater good may outweigh the potential downsides of doing that. But you only have to look at the thing like the Strava controversy this week where this fitness app has been being used by you know CIA agents in Mogadishu running around airfields. And Strava has published this global map of their trails, completely de-identified, not connected to anyone's names. But people have just been finding secret CIA bases by looking at this data. And the problem is that no one ever foresaw that. No one, it, when Strava showed people its privacy policy, it's like, yeah, do you agree to Strava? Everyone well, no, no, well Sal, nobody read their privacy policies. No, I, I know, I know. But even hypothetically, if they did, there was no bit in the privacy policy which was like, by the way, we may out your secret <laughs> CIA base. So my point in saying this is that when you make bulk decisions about data sets without 
you know, giving people continued granular insight into what's happening with their data. It means that you run the risk of things like that happening. What would a, what would a Strava look like if it was healthcare data? I think we would maybe cure cancer. But I realize that <laughs> that this is going to be a long running debate. And actually, sadly, my role is to ask you the questions and sub and have to endure your answers, even if I disagree with it. No, but I but respect I, it. No, but I think it's I think it's a good debate. I think you know I think what we agree on is that we both want this stuff to happen. We just disagree agree on how we want it to happen. Choose your seconds. Choose your weapons. Hyde Park, 6 a.m. tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Look, thank you very much. Sure, Ken. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. Next up, motion sickness in self-driving cars. Although expectations are high among those who are proponents of self-driving cars, that people will be able to do productive things in them, for many people, that is actually an unlikely prospect. Many people say that they will instead be looking out the window. The reason why? Because it helps them avoid nausea, dizziness, and indeed vomiting, particularly among the 5 to 10% of the population who regularly experience car sickness. I'm joined here today by The Economist Innovation Editor, Paul Markley, who's been writing about the topic. Hello, Paul. Hi, Ken. Paul, what causes motion sickness? Well, it's an imbalance. It's a conflict uh, between signals arriving at your brain from the inner ear, which is part of the mechanism that deals with the movement and balance in a mechanical way, and signals from the eyes, which detect motion optically. And uh, if you're looking at something stationary in a vehicle, such as a laptop or a magazine or possibly even having a nap, your eyes may inform you that what you're looking at is not moving, but your ear is telling you this is, can't be right. It's counteracting you by sensing the motion of the vehicle, and the resulting confusion makes you sick. Okay. So what does the technique do to alleviate the fact that people would otherwise be sick? Well, this is an idea that two researchers at the University of Michigan have come up with and have just got a patent on. And what they're going to use is a series of flashing lights, which could be installed in your hat or in a cap or in the sides of your glasses, like small LEDs. And these would sort of flash in rhythmic sense to the way you were driving. So, for instance, if you're going forwards, the lights might flash from the front to the back. If you're turning left, they might flash from the right to the left, etc. And that would provide a visual clue that your senses would find that probably quite comforting to balance what your ear is detecting in a mechanical form. And that, they think, will stop the symptoms of motion sickness. Okay, so does it work? Well, they're building a prototype. <laughs> okay. They've had the what idea. They think it will. There is some evidence that it can alleviate the symptoms. So there is evidence for this. So they'll get the prototype. Um, and they're talking to car makers and the university hope to commercialize the idea. So we'll see when they get going. But there is evidence that these sort of things could work. This sounds to me like part of the solution, not the solution. It's a part of a solution in the sense you have to put something on your head. But there's another idea that maybe you could incorporate these lights into part of the car itself, in seats or walls or something like that, so you can sit in it. And, and so, so long as it's in your peripheral vision, you know, you're vaguely aware of the thing moving, um, that might be enough as well. So then you wouldn't have to put anything on. And of course, it's not just for people in autonomous cars. 
which, you know, are coming. There's lots of people who get uh, sick anyway in, in cars, particularly children. So it could work for those as well. And if we don't do this, what is certain is that there'll be a huge class of people who, when they're inside a self-driving car, will not be able to actually be productive because they're just going to feel quite ill. Indeed. I mean, that could be quite a large number because the idea is that you would be calling up a self-driving car in an app and a car from Lyft or Uber would turn up, you'd jump in and you'd be busy working on your laptop or reading your magazine or something. Everyone pukes up. So there's going to be huge cleanup bills for these companies. How much innovation is in this idea? Is the idea simply having lights moving in the direction of the vehicle so that people have the visual and sensory clues of that motion? Or are the lights timed in a very synchronized, data-driven way that links up the motion with the light's behavior? I think you're going to find, like with many uh, technological inventions these days, it's going to be that software side that determines it, that if you can really mimic the action with the timing, maybe the intensity of the lights, the way the lights are formed, it's sorting that out, actually, which you're, you're trying to trick the brain, in other words. And the brain runs on an awful lot of clever software, and you're going to need clever software to uh, counter what otherwise. There's many sort of ideas about what causes motion sickness. One of those is that, in fact, what's going on, those conflict of signals that you receive tell you that, hang on a minute, you're hallucinating. And why are you hallucinating? You've probably swallowed some poison. And the best way to get rid of the poison is to throw up. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds great. Sounds lovely. Sounds great. Thanks a lot, Paul. Cheers. If you have any thoughts on the tech giants entering the world of health or whether driverless cars would make you sick, do put them into an email and send them our way to radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. Now, regular Babbage listeners will know that each week we are starting a book contest in which I will give away a new book related to technology and science in return for you folks just emailing us and asking for it, provided two things. One, that you're committed to the book, that you'll dip into it and perhaps even read it. And secondly, that maybe you'll tell us what you like about the show and also what we could improve. In our previous contest, the winner was a fellow named Joseph from Brussels, Belgium, and he won the biography of Enrico Fermi, the physicist. This week, we're giving away the book, The Inversion Factor, How to Thrive in the IoT Economy. If you don't know what IoT is, clearly you disqualify yourself from the book, but it does stand for Internet of Things. So it's the Internet of Things Economy. It was published recently by MIT Press. The authors are Linda Bernardi, Sanjay Sarma, and Kenneth Traub. So please email us at radio at economist.com. Tell us what you like about the show, what you'd like to see improved, and we'll send you a copy of the inversion factor. Finally, could genes play a role in the likelihood of divorce? That the children of divorced parents are more likely, when they grow up, to get divorced themselves is well known. What is not known is how much this tendency is the result of nurture versus nature. That genes are important has, though, now been confirmed by a new study. I'm joined by the Economist science correspondent, Matt Kaplan. Hello, Matt. Hiya, Ken. So who is behind this research and where was it carried out? 
So the researchers are based in the States, and they were curious about whether or not you could find heritability in association with divorce. And the place to go and look at that was in Sweden, where they have outstanding records of uh, both uh, biological children and children who are adopted. And they engineered this experiment whereby they looked at the children who were, were given up by their biological parents to go and live with adopted parents and were able to monitor whether the children's biological parents got divorced or whether or not their adopted parents got divorced. And then through the years, were able to track whether those children themselves became divorced. And uh, you know, they had thousands and thousands of kids that they were able to look at and thousands of parents. And what they found was that if you are raised in a home and the parents get divorced, if the parents are not biologically related to you, you are no more likely to get divorced than otherwise. But if you are the child of a parent who got divorced, even if you don't live with that parent, you are 1.2 times more likely to get divorced at some stage in your life, suggesting that there's some heritability going on in there. Matt, does this somehow undermine the long-held nurture versus nature theory? Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't completely disqualify the notion that if you're raised in a home where there is a, a lot of social unrest that ultimately results in divorce, that a child may learn that and ultimately f follow through with those behaviors themselves when they're adults. Uh, what it does suggest is that there seems to be something biological about whether or not you get divorced. And what's interesting is these researchers then backed up their research with a second experiment where they looked at siblings. And those siblings were either adopted siblings or siblings who were living with their parents. And what they found was even if siblings were split up, if one sibling got divorced, the other sibling was very likely to get divorced as well. And if the children, if one sibling did not get divorced and the other was less likely to get divorced, you tended to see divorcing happening in both, both siblings if that occurred. And again, it was irrespective of whether or not parents got divorced if those parents were not related to you. It only seemed to really matter if the parents were biologically related to the children. Sounds like there's a danger that this might become a self-fulfilling prophecy. One of the nice things about this study is it points out that we now understand that there is a biological tendency to become divorced. At least it seems like that. They'll have to replicate this work. But if we now know that, then we can say, okay, right. These children who have never seen fighting parents because they've been adopted and they live in a family where the parents are together and remaining together, they come from parents biologically who did get divorced. As such, some sort of action could be taken early in life to try to, to counter that, whether that's psychological intervention or therapy, and whether or not that's going to take place when they are children or whether they're adults remains to be determined. But it suggests that this information could be used to help reduce divorce in people who are biologically tended to go that way. My thanks to The Economist science correspondent, Matt Kaplan. And that's all for this week's edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up this week's Economist or find us online at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, 
award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.